The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Today I want to talk a little bit about controlling uh, designing control systems. This will finish up our discussions of signals and systems. Let me then just briefly review where we are. Hopefully this might help you also to, for uh, perspective with regard to thinking about the exam tonight. We've looked at a bunch of different kinds of representations for discrete time systems. The easiest most concise method we looked at was the representation using a difference equation. That's mathematically as concise as you can get. But it doesn't tell you important things like who's the input and who's the output, and what are all the different ways that you can get through the system from input to output. So for that question, block diagrams are nice. Block diagrams are graphical. It makes it very easy to see when there is, for example, a cyclic path through the, through the uh, network. But they're graphic. They're not nearly so concise as difference equations. So then we went on to operators. Operators are just as concise as difference equations, but they contain additional information because the operators have an implicit argument. So there's an input, which is the argument to the operator, and there's an output, which is the output of the operator. So you can tell who was the input and who was the output. So that's good. That sort of combines the strengths of difference equations in block diagrams. You end up with a concise representation that has complete information about the signal flow paths. Furthermore, you can analyze uh, the operators by using polynomial mathematics, and that gives rise to the notion of a system functional. And that's a very nice closure, because that represents an abstraction that lets us think about a whole system as though it were just one part, one thing, one operator. So we use that structure then, all of those representations, to try to learn about feedback. <clears throat> And first off, in the block diagram, it's very easy to see that anytime you have feedback, feedback's so enormously powerful that we want to use it in design. But you can see immediately from the structure of the block diagram that if you have feedback, then you have cycles. Why is that interesting? Well, that's interesting because if you have cycles, then even transient inputs can generate persistent outputs. So that's a kind of behavior that we would like to understand. So from the nature of feedback, it generates cycles. From the nature of cycles, it generates persistent responses, even if there's no input. And we saw that we could characterize those by thinking about those responses for one part at a time. And those parts we thought of as poles. And the responses to a single pole we called modes. So we thought through a way of decomposing the response of a complicated system in terms of the response, uh, uh, in terms of a number of additive components that are based on poles. Poles are just the base of a geometric sequence. 
So today, then, what I want to do is use that framework to think about design. How would you optimize the design of a controller? So looking back to where we've been, way back in lab four, ancient history, we looked at how you could program the robot to approach a wall. And we saw that depending on how you set up that system, you could get very different performances. And what we'd like to do is have a way that we can design for performance without actually building it. The kind of thing that we built in the lab, lab four, was so easy that building it to determine its behaviors was not a bad problem. But in general, if you were building a 777, there's more than one pole. And you wouldn't necessarily want to test drive all of the bad configurations. So we'd like to be able to understand that kind of a problem analytically. We'd like to be able to analyze it. <clears throat> so using the different representations, you can generate a very concise representation just thinking in terms of difference equations. You all did this in lab four. And you get a single difference equation that tells you in principle everything there is that you could know, but not in a form that's very easy to analyze. It's a bit better if you translate the difference equation into a block diagram, because now you can see that this system of equations has, in fact, two feedback loops in it, two cycles, two things that might potentially generate persistent responses to transient signals, which could then degrade performance. If the transient signal lasts 10 years, it might be a bad controller. If the, F77, if the 777 hits turbulence and never stabilizes, Right? That would be bad. <laughs> if small disturbances got bigger with time, that might be bad. Right? So we can see that this simple controller, described by these difference equations, has the potential to do that sort of stuff. And we'd like to understand when, when does it. The easiest way to think about analyzing this is to think about focus first on the inner loop and ask the question, What's the functional representation for that box, which we would call an accumulator? This box, this thing, accumulates at its output the sum of all the things that ever came in. So we call it an accumulator. <clears throat> so what's the functional representation of an accumulator? Well, we just do polynomial math. Easy. right? So we can recognize from the block diagram that the signal y could be constructed by applying r to w. But we can also see in the block diagram that w is the sum of x and y. And then if we take the left-hand side and the right-hand side of this double equation, we get something that involves just x and y, which we can solve for the ratio y over x, which then says that the ratio is r over 1 minus r. <clears throat> That's a functional representation for the effect of the accumulation. That's also something that comes up so frequently in, in the design of control systems that we give it a name. We call this Black's equation. And it's especially useful to avoid these um, little trivial steps in algebra to just jump to the answer. So let's see that everybody's following me. Figure out. The, the equation for this box is the thing that we will call Black's, Black's equation. It's not mysterious. It's something that you could derive. 
So derive it. <laughs> figure out the functional form for the system that goes from x to y, and figure out which of these forms is correct. 1 through 4 or 5 if none of the above applies. So take 30 seconds, figure out the answer. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. You're free to talk to your neighbors. OK, so everybody raise your hands. Tell me what the right answer is. OK, wonderful. It's about 95%. No, it's about 100% correct out of about 95% participation. <laughs> so the answer you can form just like we did before. No particular tricks using simple algebra. Simple algebra, you get f over 1 minus fg. The thing I want you to recognize is kind of a graphical way of thinking about that. I mean, you could just memorize f over 1 minus fg, and that's fine. But there's some interesting things that a designer thinks about. The, this this uh, functional form is f. That's the forward gain. That's the gain through the system, starting at the input and going directly to the output. So this form says that the closed loop gain, the loop that happened, the the uh, system functional that results when the loop is closed, is just the forward gain, f, divided by 1 minus the loop gain. The loop gain is the product around the loop once. So that's just a convenient way of thinking about it. Anytime you have uh, a feedback system of this type, you can think about the closed loop response as being the forward path, f, divided by 1 minus the loop gain, fg. <clears throat> so the answer was 1. And generally, we'll see two different ways of representing the system. Sometimes we'll represent it with a plus, as we did with the accumulator. Many times we'll represent it with a minus. That's the way we think about control problems. We put in the minus because we like to think about the controller as trying to make something go to zero. So when you take the difference, that gives us an error signal. And then we can think about the controller being the thing that drives that error to zero. <clears throat> but however you think about it, uh, there's two forms that are very closely related. They really differ by just the minus sign, which you could think of as just multiplying g. So it's sort of like the right-hand side is just a minus g plugged into the left-hand side. <clears throat> so then the way you use this idea, you think about the block diagram, and you say, OK, I can replace this thing with an equivalent system, which is r over 1 minus r, and then repeat. So. Uh, the r over 1 minus r means that if you think about Black's equation now for this loop, you should think about the forward gain, k minus t r over 1 minus r, that's this, divided by 1 plus the loop gain. So 1 plus and the loop gain, well, this, the wire down here just has a gain of 1. So the loop gain and the forward gain are the same thing. 
So you get this kind of expression, which simplifies to this. There's two things I want you to see about this. First off, I want you to see that even though the simple-minded way of plugging in said that we should have got a quotient of quotients, n over d over n over d, it simplified to a single ratio. If you, if you design a system out of just um, adders, gains, and delays, that will always be true. There's a closure. It will always be the case that the functional that represents a system of that form will always have the property that it's a polynomial in R divided by another polynomial in R. That's just the way polynomials work. <clears throat> the other thing is that you can now start to interpret what the behavior of this could, could represent in a simpler form than thinking about this. So this kind of a representation that leads to um, intuition about what the behavior should be is very helpful when you're thinking about design. And in particular, this particular thing says that um, if we think about this thing as the way, it, uh, if we think about a simpler system that could generate that same response, we can generate some intuition for where we would like, how we would like to set the parameter k. <clears throat> so in particular, this system, this system functional, which we generated for this system, could equally apply to that system. Is that clear? So there's a numerator, which I've represented here. There's a numerator which has an r in it and has a minus kt in it. I'm going to, uh, for reasons that you'll see in a minute, I'm going to call something p naught because it's the pole. <clears throat> So the numerator I've represented here, and this denominator has this form. And I wrote it that way because this is the canonical form for the way of thinking about a pole. So what I've showed is that even though this was a more complicated system, you can think about it as the cascade of a delay, a gain, and a pole. The, gain, uh, the pole can be calculated from the gain. The pole is the multiplier for r. So the pole is 1 plus kt. So if I were to choose kt to be minus 0.2, then the pole would be at 0.8. If the pole is at 0.8, then the mode, the natural response to the pole, would have the form p to the n. They always have the form geometric p to the n. So it would look like 0.8 to the n. Because of the pre-multiplier of 1 minus p naught, the whole thing gets multiplied by 0.2. And because of the delay, the whole thing gets shifted to the right. The important thing is that by thinking about manipulating this as an operator, we can recognize and simplify the form of the behavior. That gives us an intuitive grasp over how to best choose kt. Every, it's all clear? Now, the behaviors that we're interested in are not always unit sample responses. We do unit sample responses because they're the easiest possible thing we could think of, <clears throat> right? A unit sample is the simplest non-zero signal, right? A unit sample is the signal that is different from zero in exactly one place 
the easiest possible place, 0, and it has its easiest possible non-zero value, 1. So the, we focus on the unit sample signal because it's the easiest possible signal we could think about. But when we're thinking about behaviors, we're often thinking about other things. <clears throat> often we'll think about the step response. Here I've illustrated the way you would measure a step response. A step response is what would happen if the output were initially 0, if we were at rest, and suddenly we turned on a signal that was constant at 1. So that would happen in the, in the robot case if we started the robot close to the wall at rest, near zero, near, so that the output is close to zero, so the output signal is close to zero. But the desired input was a meter behind. Then that would be an input signal that started at time equal zero equal to one and persisted forever at one. And the result then would be what we call the step response. The step response is typically easier to measure in the lab than is the unit sample response. So we use the unit sample response when we're thinking analytically, when we're doing calculations, and we use the step response when we're in the lab trying to measure something. <clears throat> and the whole theory wouldn't be very useful if there weren't a close relationship between those two things. And this diagram il illustrates the relationship. If we think about a system H for which we would like to find the step response, the step response of that system is what would the system do if you put the unit step into the system? I've represented the unit step here as u of n. u of n, the signal that is 0 for n less than 0 and 1 for n bigger than or equal to 0, is just the accumulation of the delta function, the unit sample. So this system the cascade of an accumulator with H would measure the step response of H if it were driven with a unit sample signal. <clears throat> because of the properties of polynomials and because block diagrams follow the rules for polynomials, we can flip these whenever the um, systems both start at rest. And if we flip those, we get a different interpretation. What this says is that if you were to take h and stimulate it with a unit sample, you would get h, little h, which we would call the unit sample response, because it's the response of the system when the input is the unit sample. So if you measured h with a unit sample rather than with a unit step, you would get the unit sample response from which you could generate the step response by running it through an accumulator. So what that says is there's a close association. There's a close relationship between the unit sample response and the unit step response. One is the accumulation of the other. The unit step response is the accumulated response to the unit sample response. <clears throat> so that means that in that previous example where we saw that setting kt equal to minus 0.2 resulted in this unit sample response, that would correspond to this unit step response. All you do is for every sample you calculate, um, for this response, you calculate the sum of, say, n equals 0. You would take the sum of all of the previous uh, answers in h of n, 
it's the accumulation. So this, it starts at zero, since the sum of all those numbers is zero. <clears throat> then at time one, it becomes the sum from here back. So it becomes 0.2. Then here, it's the sum from here back. And if you add these all up, it becomes a number that approaches one, not surprisingly, right? If you've got a feedback system, and if you started the robot up against the wall and the desired position was one meter behind, it would monotonically approach one. Okay, And what you can see is that if you change the value of the pole, here I've changed the, the um, KT from minus 0.2, which is what the previous answer was, to minus 0.8. I've changed the value of the pole. The unit sample response got faster. <clears throat> and the unit step response also got faster. The point is, there are different kinds of performance metrics that we might want to use, unit sample response, unit step response. But the responses of all of them, you can tell something about the response to all of them <clears throat> from the response to the unit sample signal. That's why we focus so much on the unit sample signal. It's not because it's the most popular thing to use in the lab. It's because it's the easiest thing to calculate with. <clears throat> and it gives us insight into things that we would like to measure in the lab. So for this very simple system, what you can show is that there's only a few possible behaviors, a few categories of behaviors. <clears throat> if you were to choose KT to be between 0 and 1, then the pole, which is 1 plus KT, would also be between 0 and 1. <clears throat> Since the system has a single pole, you can say a lot about the response from the numerical value of the pole. If the pole is between 0 and 1, then the response is going to be monotonic and converging. <clears throat> that results because the unit sample response was positive only and decayed towards 0. Because it's positive only, it makes the step response Converge. Yeah, excuse me. Positive only means monotonic. Goes to zero makes it converge. <clears throat> so you can infer properties about the unit steps response from properties of the pole, just like we could infer properties of the unit sample response. If you changed KT to be between minus two and one, you would get a P naught that's between minus one and zero. Again, that's just that equation. <clears throat> That says that the response will be alternating. So the sign of the unit sample response goes positive, then negative. <clears throat> it still converges in the sense that the unit sample response approaches 0. And what that means for the unit step response is that the unit step response will converge toward 1. And it doesn't, the unit step response won't alternate about uh, the, the sign won't alternate. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. The sign doesn't alternate around 0. The sign alternates around 1. <clears throat> so again, you can infer the properties of the unit step response from the properties of the unit sample response. And if you have kt that is less than minus 2, then you get a p naught that's less than minus 1, and that's a divergent response. <clears throat> so the point is that you can infer properties about the control system by thinking about the poles of the system, 
where here I've illustrated it for a simple system that only has one pole. <clears throat> okay, I told you a bunch of facts, now you figure out something. How would I choose K for this system to get the, quote, best performance? <clears throat> So which value of kt would give the uh, fastest convergence for the uh, unit sample signal? Uh, OK, participation is down. But the hit rate is still good. <laughs> so uh, virtually everybody who volunteered an answer got the right answer. Uh, so the most popular answer was 2. Why is the answer 2? What's, what's the range of possibilities that we could get? I mean, we could choose K or KT. We could choose KT to be, what's the range of KT that we could use? Minus 2 to 0. You could use, so in principle, you could use KT any real number, right? 
we could use imaginary numbers because that doesn't sort of make sense for a real system. <clears throat> but we could choose sort of any real number. The real numbers map according to this chart. The real numbers map to a different real number. If you choose KT, you can figure out where is the pole by that mapping. <clears throat> where would you put the pole to get the fastest response? If you have your choice of putting the pole in anywhere on this red line, that red line, or that red line, where would you put it? And why? Just inside the unit circle. So it, it, putting it inside the unit circle would probably be a good idea because yeah, if you didn't put it inside the unit circle, it wouldn't converge. That's right. So you'd like to hold like the inside. Given the choice of anywhere here and anywhere here, which would you choose? How would you choose it? Yeah. Zero. Zero. Right. So the yeah. idea, and how did you get that? What would happen if it was close to zero but not zero? It, that, it converges quite quickly, right? Poles always converge geometrically. The base of the geometric is the pole value. So you'd like the pole to be as small as possible to get the convergence as fast as possible. Does that make sense to everybody? So in particular, for this, for this example, if you chose kt to be minus 1 in that limit, then this entire factor goes away. So the entire response degenerates to r. <clears throat> and r is not instantaneous, but it's pretty fast. right? What that says is that you get to the final value in one step. So if the input consisted of a unit sample, which has non-zero value only at 0, the output would have non-zero value only at 1. Right? So thinking about the way that works in practice, so think about the robot. Think about we're trying to drive toward the wall. If we made kt be minus 1, and just for the sake of being, um, cons uh, for, of being concrete, let me say that t is about 1 tenth. That is, that's what the sampling period is for the robots we use in the lab. <clears throat> if t were 1 tenth, then the best k would be minus 10. And what that says is that if we were 1 meter away from where we want to be, we would set the velocity to 10 meters per second. <clears throat> what that says is that if we started one meter away from where we want to be, so this dot is intended to represent position on the same axis that this is showed. <clears throat> so if we started here and we wanted to be here, time is plotted down. If we use the rule that we just specified, then we would set the velocity given this condition which is one meter away from where we want to be, we would set the velocity to be 10. If we set the velocity to be 10, then after one unit of time, after a tenth of a second, we are one meter to the right, which just happens to be exactly where we want to be. Had we chosen k to be bigger, we would have overshot. Had we chosen k to be smaller, we would have undershot. k equals 10 gave us precisely the right answer so that we get there in one fell swoop. 
then on the very next step, we would compute a velocity of zero because we're, we are at where we want to be. So we would stay there. And that, would, that condition would persist forever. <clears throat> so the idea would be this simple system provides a way that we could set the gain so we could get to where we want to be in one step. It's hard to beat that. <clears throat> the problem that results, and the reason you didn't see that good a behavior in the lab, was that the sensors in the robot don't work instantaneously. <clears throat> they introduce delay. And as an idealization of that delay, I want to think through the same problem, but now let's say that the sensor delays the uh, input to the sensor, which is the output of the system. <clears throat> let's say that the sensor introduces a delay of 1. So now, instead of reporting d sensed, which was d naught of n, it reports d naught of n minus 1. <clears throat> so now what would happen? Now with the delay, if I started here, and if by some mysterious process I was here at time t, uh, n equals 1, then I would calculate my new velocity. What would be my new velocity here? I'm right where I want to be. What would be my new velocity if I assume that the sensor has a delay of 1? 10. 10. Because of the delay, the sensor is reporting that I'm a meter away from where I want to be. So the controller calculates, oh, I need to go forward a meter. I'll set the velocity to 10. So having set the velocity to 10, and then one step goes by, now we're completely on the wrong side. That's what happens when you put delay into the system. So because we're basing this decision on where we were last time, we go to the wrong place. <clears throat> so now we're here. What will the controller say next? Stay here. You're at a great place. Right? So I'm really one meter too close. In fact, I banged into the wall. But the sensor is telling me I'm exactly where I want to be. So stay here. <laughs> say I didn't kill myself, what will the velocity next be? Minus 10. So now I tell myself to go back. That's probably a good move. But now I still think I'm close to, too close to the wall, so I tell myself to continue to back up. So the idea is that I get poor performance. Right? The delay had a devastating effect on the way that the controller worked. Even though it's a tiny change to the way the system works, it has a devastating effect on behavior. So we'd like to be able to predict that without having to measure it. So here's the same equations, except that I've put a delay in the sensor. Here's the same block diagram, but I've represented a delay in the sensor path. <clears throat> so now the question is, what's the new functional representation for that? control system.
So what's the answer? Can you write the functional form for this system as one of one, two, three, or four, or is it none of the above? It's about a third participation and about 100% correct. So the answer is four. So you just use Black's equation or however you like to think about that. You can think about reducing the inner loop the same as we did before, and then think about this as forward over 1 plus loop gain. But now the loop gain has r squared in it instead of r. <clears throat> so we get this form. How does this form differ when the r wasn't here? What's the difference between r not there and r is there? What change? The square term. So this term in the previous form was just an r, and in this form is a squared. So what's that do? What's the importance of the fact that there's a squared there? Two poles, right? We now have a polynomial in the denominator that is quadratic in r. And what that's going to do is it's going to give us two poles instead of one. The importance of that is that now we're going to have to think through, we, we previously categorized what were all the behaviors you could get from one pole. The behaviors you could get from one pole were uh, monotonic divergence, non-monotonic alternating divergence, monotonic convergence, uh, alternating Convergence. So there were four behaviors that were possible with one pole. Now we have to think through what are all the possible behaviors that we could get with two poles, right? Different problem. Hopefully they're related. So here, the way we would find out what the poles are is take this expression, substitute for every r, 1 over z, <clears throat> turn the, the ratio of polynomials in r into a ratio of polynomials in z, to do that, in this case, I had to multiply numerator and denominator by z squared. Having done that, I get a second-order second polynomial in z in the bottom. So there's two poles, which are the roots of that polynomial. <coughs> and that's just the quadratic equation. <coughs> so the interesting thing now is to map out what are all the possible behaviors that that system can give us. So. It's important to realize that's a simple generalization of what we saw before. It will be the case that any system that we construct out of adders, gains, and delays will have the property that we can write the system functional as a ratio of polynomials in R. We will be able to, by the factor theorem, we will always be able to factor the denominator. And by the notion of partial fractions, we'll always be able to write some complicated expression like that in terms of a sum of parts, each part being first order. So the intuition we get from this is that what we ought to do is factor the denominator, find the poles, and associate a behavior with each of those poles. <clears throat> so here's what the problem looks like for the two-pole problem. If we have the general form given here, 
And if we start by thinking about kT being a small, having a, a small magnitude, <clears throat> if kT has a small magnitude, then we have half plus or minus the square root of half squared. So that's half plus or minus a half, that's zero or one. So the poles for this system, if you make k be very small, the poles are at zero, near zero and near one. Is that a good system response or a bad system response? <clears throat> bad, why? Well, we're trying to think through the behavior of the second order system by thinking about the separate behaviors of each of the poles, right? So is this a good pole or a bad pole? Why? The response is always pole to the end, right? The mode associated with the response at a pole near one is something near one to the n. That never converges, right? If you start with some error, the error persists forever. Well, that's not good, right? If, the, uh, if wind turbulence knocks you into a decline in your airplane and it persists forever, right? That's not good. <laughs> you would like those things to damp out. So this pole is bad. How about that pole? That one's good. That one has a response that decays quickly. But the problem is that when you add the two pieces together, that was the reason I showed you this decomposition, you can think about the polynomial being factored and being broken into a number of parts. The part that's associated with the pole near 1 has a response that goes for a long time. So that will asymptotically dominate your response. <clears throat> so we refer to this as a dominant pole. This pole dominates the response. <clears throat> That's a way of inferring behavior of two poles from, a, from the sum of uh, single poles. Right? There's one, in this particular case, there's one pole that matters more than the other one. So we call that pole the dominant pole. <clears throat> if you were to make KT uh, more negative, so here's the general form. If you make KT negative, you can make the thing under the radical sign go towards zero. If you made the thing under the radical sign go to zero, then you would get two poles at a half. That would happen. Uh, so, so here we would see that if KT were minus a quarter, if KT were minus a quarter, we would have half squared, which is plus a quarter, minus a quarter would give us zero under the radical. So we would get two poles at a half. Is that good or bad? Well, it's better than the previous example, right? Because each of those poles is associated with a response where the error gets half what it used to be on every step. <clears throat> So it converges. If you were to continue to make k, you know, if going from 0 to minus a quarter is good, well, then going to minus a half might be better, right? If you continue that trend, say you make kt be minus 1, if kt is minus 1, then you get a half squared minus 1. So a half squared is a quarter. Minus 1 would be minus 3 quarters. <clears throat> That gives us a complex pole pair. <clears throat> so we get two poles that are right on the unit circle. So what's that mean? That means oscillations, right? Oscillations is something you can't get with one pole, with a real system, right? Oscillations result from a complex, from a, a 
pole that has an imaginary component. If the system is real, you can only get such a pole, uh, you can only get such poles in pairs. <clears throat> so it's this pair that makes sense for a real valued system. And that gives rise to oscillations, and that's exactly what we saw here. <clears throat> so we can associate the oscillations that we saw in the simulated lab experiment with poles that have imaginary components. So what would be the period of the oscillation in the system given by uh, a half plus j root 3 over 2? Substitute um, oh. minus one. So what's the period of the oscillation? Okay, so the period's represented by five figures, which is six. So how do you get six? The easiest way to think about that is to think about the poles being expressed in polar notation. The poles we previously said were half plus or minus j root 3 over 2. That's the same as e plus or minus j pi over 3. It's easier to use that form because if you take that form, so if you think about uh, um, e to the j, what was it, 2 pi over 3? Pi over 3. So if you think about that form, that's the pole. If we associate, so that, we can write that that way, right? then the inside has a magnitude of 1. <clears throat> so we can think about that just being a magnitude of 1 and an angle of pi over 3. So when you raise that to the n, the magnitude to the n, 1 to the n, is always 1. <clears throat> and the angle raised to the n it just increases linearly with n. So the angle goes from pi over 3 to 2 pi over 3 to pi to 4 pi over 3, etc. So you can think about this going from uh, pi over 3, 2 pi over 3, pi, 4, 5, 6. It takes n equals 6 to get around to where it started, so the period is 6. If you were to further change the gain, if you were to make it even more negative, the poles would go outside <coughs> the unit circle, and then what would happen? Then it diverges, right? So that's completely unacceptable. So the, the point is that by 
changing the gain, you can get any behavior on this figure, which is called the root locus. So root meaning the, the uh, root of a polynomial, locus meaning the acceptable values of points. <clears throat> so the root locus shows you all the possible behaviors that could result from this system. So given that root locus, how would you choose k <clears throat> to make your system response as fast as you could? So what value of kt would you want? Every region has. OK, that's very good. So the most popular answer is number two. So why would the answer be number two? What do you look at? Yeah. So we want to, so remember what we're trying to do. We're trying to infer properties of the behavior of this second order system from the pole locations, we know that there's an expansion that lets us expand the system in terms of the sum of two first order responses. The slowest of the first order responses will dominate eventually. So what we need to look at is the slowest of the two responses. <coughs> so we would like to know of the two poles which one is the slowest? The slowest is the one that's closest to the unit circle. So we would get the fastest response when the slowest one is as fast as possible. <clears throat> so as, they, as the poles initially uh, go toward each other from 0 to 1, uh, this one is getting faster. This one is getting slower. So the slowest one is this one. So they, the slowest one is fastest when they meet. And then when they diverge, does the slowest one get faster or slower? Slower one gets slower because it gets closer to the unit circle. So you get the fastest response whenever you get the two poles both colliding at a half. And that was the case that happened when kt was minus a quarter from two or three slides ago. <coughs> So the idea then is to try to infer what would be the behavior of this higher order system by thinking about the behaviors of the individual components, here the poles. <clears throat> and what we saw was something that's in fact a very important general trend. What we saw was that we first analyzed the wall finder system assuming there was no delay in the sensor. <clears throat> And we found that that system was characterized by a single pole. And we had the design freedom of putting that pole uh, anywhere we wanted to on the real axis. And 
that allowed us to choose the pole to be at zero, which gave terrific performance. The interesting thing that happened when you add just one more pole by putting a delay in the sensor, you make the system more complicated. And now you can't possibly get nearly so good behavior. <clears throat> the behavior is a lot worse than it was before. <clears throat> and in fact, if you were to do the same kind of analysis by putting a, yet another delay in the sensor, <clears throat> you would find even worse behavior. So the idea then, the generalization of this, uh, the way the behaviors is working, generally speaking, adding delays inside a feedback loop is a destabilizing thing. <clears throat> generally, as the number of delays increases, you end up having to back off on the maximum gain that you can use because the system becomes uh, less stable. <clears throat> so the, the overall moral is that delays are bad, generally. I mean, you can concoct some kind of a weird scheme where that wouldn't be true, but it's actually hard to concoct such a weird scheme. In general, and in virtually every physical system that you run into, adding delays makes the system harder to stabilize. And that's kind of the big message. <clears throat> and the system that we uh, looked at in the lab, the wall finder was actually quite hard <clears throat> because the number of delays was large. <clears throat> if you try to track where delays can enter the robot system, they get in at very many different places. <clears throat> in the physical sensor, in the microprocessor, in the conversion from analog to digital, there's a number of delays in that system. And that's why it becomes hard to stabilize. <clears throat> OK, so that's the main content for today. What I want to do is give you one more practice question to think about the, prob the big problem that I want you to think about from today is how do you characterize performance? When we had a single pole, performance was easy to talk about because performance was um, diverging monotonically, diverging alternating. Converging, monotonically, converging, alternating. There were four kinds of behaviors. When we went to second order, we saw some new behaviors. It could become oscillatory. <clears throat> what I'd like you to do now is think not just about those properties, but many other properties. So here's some questions. Think about the system on the top, and I'd like you to infer properties about that system. <clears throat> In particular, does this system have three poles? Is the unit sample response, is there a way to write that as a, geometric, uh, as a sum of three geometric sequences? What's the unit sample response? And is one of the poles at z equals 1? So think about the system. Think about five ways of characterizing it. And tell me how many of those five characterizations is correct.
So how many of the properties are true? How many poles? How do you get three? Where are the poles? How do I find poles? Where are they? Yeah. this thing and we would rewrite that with r goes to 1 over z. So we get 1 over z cubed 1 over 1 minus z cubed, which is then clearing the z cubes, we would get uh, 1 over z cubed minus 1. How many poles? Three. What are the poles of z cubed minus 1? <laughs> Three poles at one. Uh, zero, eight, two, five, three, five, and four, five, three. So let's vote. Let's take a vote. There's two poles at z equals one. Yes. No. Why not? So there's three poles. So if we make a z plane, where's the poles? Well, you could factor it, right? If you factored it, you would find that there is a pole at 1, right? But then there's two more poles like that, right? So the poles are the three roots of 1, right? Which can be written like um, 1 e to the j uh, 2 pi over 3, and e to the j minus 2 pi over 3. <coughs> Which pole is the dominant pole? Okay, bad question. <laughs> What's a better question? How many dominant poles are there? That's a much better question. Yes, there's sort of three poles that are equally dominant, right? They all have the same magnitude. <clears throat> What's it, why, why do we talk about dominant poles? What are dominant poles good for? So if I, what's, so if I told you that I had a pole at three and a pole at minus one, which one is a dominant pole? Why? <laughs> Greater magnitude, why do we care? You don't care, right? <laughs> Wait, what's good about the dominant pole? Well, we can write this we can write this response as something that looks like three to the n plus minus one to the n. If you let n get big enough, the only one that matters is three to the n. So if all you care about is exactly how the plane was flying the instant before it hit the ground, 
then you would only need to worry about long time. And if you only worry about long time, you only need to worry about the pole that's worst behaved. Right? That's where the concept comes from. So none of these poles are particularly worse behaved than the others. Right? What's the unit sample response associated with that pole? We have a name for that signal, right? It's a unit step response, right? What's the unit sample response associated with this pole? Well, it's got a complex value, right? <clears throat> so the unit sample response associated with that pole is e to the j 2 pi over 3 n, right? So that's a complex number. So that's 1 at time 0, and e to the j 2 pi over 3 n at time 1, and e to the j 4 pi over 3 n uh, at time 2. So it goes from here at 0 to here at 1 to here at 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. What's the period of, the, of this pole? What's the period of the unisample response associated with that pole? <clears throat> three, because it takes three to get around to where you started again. What's the period of this pole? Three, you just spin around backwards. What's the period of the response associated with that pole? Ah, bad question. All right, what's a better question? Is there a period associated with it? Well, you could say the period is one, that's kind of a dumb definition of period, right? Uh, so the point, so uh, what's the period of this pole? Dumb question, right? So period implies repeat, right? If the response repeats itself after some time, then we would say the response is periodic. Okay, that response is not, neither of those poles, well, no, the minus one is. The, is the minus one pole periodic? Yes. What's the difference between periodic and alternation? Is the minus one pole alternate? Yes. Does it oscillate? Bad question. So alternate is a, is a word that we invented for one pole, right? Because the response alternated in sign. The unisample response of one pole, where the pole is a negative number, alternated in sign. So we gave that a name, right? Alternation is not necessarily something that we would like to associate with a higher order system. Periodic is perfectly reasonable to talk about <clears throat> for a higher order system. Periodic merely means that if y of n were a periodic signal, then I could express y of n plus n as y of n. That would be periodic. right? If the thing repeats itself, we would say it's periodic. So the point of going over this stuff is just to give you some exercise in thinking about how to think about properties of systems. <clears throat> right? We develop properties initially thinking about one pole. Those properties were easy, converging, diverging, uh, monotonic, alternating. <clears throat> when we try to apply, when we try to think about corresponding properties of higher order systems, we can't simply map the simple properties of first order systems into the other. We have to think about more complicated things. Then we think about things like dominant, if one of the poles has a bigger magnitude than the other, then for large times, we can ignore the smaller one. <clears throat> so um, 
what happens for short time? Is it the case, does this response monotonically increase with time for all time? No. Since the response associated with minus 1 alternates in sign <clears throat> for short time, for times with n close to 0, that can be just as important as this one. So the alternation property, you, you, the dominant pole idea tells you how things work when you have large times. <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily tell you how things work when you have small times. How about um, the unit sample response is the sum of three ge geometrics, yes or no? What are the three geometrics? The answer to that's yes. That's very important, right? The three geometrics over here are this pole to the n plus this pole to the n plus something that goes with this other pole to the n. Now, it's a weighted sum, but the weights are not necessarily 0. Right. So the slide that I showed you for the partial fraction decomposition, you can always write a higher order system as a sum of first order factors. That's the partial fraction expansion. That doesn't mean the weights are all unity. <clears throat> so number two, uh, can you write the unit sample response as a sum of three geometric signals? Yes, there it is. And if you're really good at complex math, you can find out A, B, and C. And that would tell you the unit sample response. And that would tell you the answer to 3 and 4. Is the unit sample response 0, 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1, or 1, 0, 0, 1, 1, whatever? Is it one of those two or something different? And how do you figure out? How do you figure out the unit? Is the unit sample response, is number 3 correct? Is the unit, response, unit sample response 0, 0, 1? 0010010010001 yes how do you know that you could solve that equation <laughs> is there an easier way yeah i wrote it as a difference equation just write the difference equation exactly so even though i bad enough difference equations a lot here it's easy <clears throat> and in fact you can see it in the network Thinking about the difference equation would be easy. Thinking about the network would be easy. At, if we think about the unit sample response of this thing started at, z at rest, rest means this is 0, this is 0, and this is 0 initially. Unit sample response means this is, becomes 1 at time 0. At time 0, this is 1, this is 0, this is 0, this is 0. Right? So if I think about what's the time response look like, Uh, and I did plus. So this is 1, 0, 0, 0. So the first answer is 0. Clock ticks. What happens? So this is 1. This becomes 1. This doesn't change. That doesn't change. This goes to 0. The 0 comes around here. That goes to 0. So that's the answer at time 1. <clears throat> what happens at time 2? 
just keeps rotating. Uh, clock ticks. This goes to one. This goes to zero. These stay zero. This stays zero. <clears throat> That's the answer at time equal two. Now the clock ticks. Now this comes over to here. That means it comes back here. This is still zero. That comes to one. That's the answer for time three. Now the clock ticks. And you can see the whole thing will just repeat itself now. <clears throat> is the response periodic? Yes. The response is periodic. What's the period? <clears throat> three. In fact, you can show that if there's only a periodic response over there, it's going to have to be related to the periods over here. These periods are not the same, right? This period is three. This period is three. This period is ugh, one, if you want to call that a period. <laughs> but they are related. <clears throat> Okay, so the point of this exercise is to show, to illustrate two things. We inferred properties of first order systems by looking at a single pole, which for a real system could only behave in one of four different ways. <clears throat> Second order system introduced new behaviors. Now we can oscillate, which we couldn't do before. <clears throat> Having got to oscillation, oscillation came about because of complex numbers. If we go to higher order systems, nothing new happens in algebra, right? Complex numbers, there doesn't, there's no such thing as meta-complex numbers, right? Complex is as bad as it gets. <laughs> so you can have complex numbers. The higher order behaviors can still have complex numbers. But you have to think when we ask you, what's the property of a higher order system? You can think about it in terms of the individual parts, but it requires some thinking. Okay. Good luck tonight. See you then.